Hi, this is Ricardo, pastor of Journey Church Ventura. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our podcast. Hope you're having a great week. We hope it's life-giving and life-changing. Take care. Well, good morning. You belong. Welcome to our fourth week of this incredible series, and I am actually really honored and privileged to be the one to kind of close it out before we jump into our great family life series that we're doing for the summer. And I'm just glad that you're with us today. Beautiful day, beautiful weather, and here we are uh, thinking of what it means to belong somewhere. You know, um, the uh, English author Oscar Wilde once said, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. And I like that phrase. Um, It's a great idea. It's actually something that, um, uh, one of those concepts you learn when you're young, your teachers tell you, be yourself. Uh, Your parents uh, say it to you. You know, you're you're special just the way you are, kiddo. Be yourself. And then we tell it to our kids, and maybe you tell it to your grandkids. Uh, Sometimes you see quotes about this kind of stuff on inspirational posters we hang in our office to inspire our coworkers or our employees. One of them uh, is by the Chinese philosopher uh, Lao Tzu, who said, when you are content to be simply yourself and don't compare or compete, everyone will respect you. That's good. That's good advice. Um, One of my favorite philosophers is an American uh, philosopher who has written countless uh, treatises on relationships. Uh, Her name is Taylor Swift. She said, just be yourself. There is no one better. Good advice, right? Thanks, Taylor. Appreciate that. Uh, my favorite philosopher of the, of the 21st century uh, was an author that I loved when I was a kid. He said this, Today you are you. This is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. That, of course, is Dr. Seuss. Exactly. You know, my parents did what every parent does, and they encouraged me to follow these wise words like this from Dr. Seuss. In fact, that's from his book called Happy Birthday to You, which my parents read to me when I was a little kid every year of my birthday, and just a reminder that you are special, you're unique, you're created that way. It's a great reminder to all of us that in uh, this world, each one of us is special and unique, created by God for a wonderful purpose. Uh, It's unique to you alone. And so it's okay and good to just be yourself, except when it's not good to be yourself. Have you ever been the most you you could be, and yet at the same time that you're doing this, everyone looks at you as if you're a weirdo, or like, oh, that guy's really odd. Maybe you've looked at someone who's been really themselves, and you're like, wow, that is one weird kid. I tried like that when I I uh, tried very hard to play sports uh, with the other boys in elementary school, uh, but I'm going to be completely truthful with you and honest because this is church, and I don't want to lie. I was not very good at it. I, uh, I tried, and I enjoyed playing football and basketball and baseball because um, I like being part of the team. I like being part of the, you know, hey, all the boys are going to play. And um, I wasn't very good at football. What I did was the one who had to rush the quarterback. And my size then was not much bigger than it is now. And somehow all the other boys in sixth grade were like giants in the land. And so it didn't always go very well, but I, I enjoyed it. I also um, liked, uh, I liked playing basketball. Again, I sat on the bench and did a lot of encouraging to the taller boys and girls that were on the team. Um, and it felt good to fit in, though. I felt like I had a place to be, except it wasn't me. It wasn't really um, me doing those things. I wasn't being the youest part of me that I could have been. Uh, I preferred not to play sports. My main thing has never been sports. Uh, I preferred reading The Hobbit to uh, shooting hoops. I, I didn't explain to my friends um, 
uh, when we were getting there, sitting on the bench, warming up for a, a basketball game, that I preferred um, creating and acting out stories during recess and not getting pounded on the football t- uh, field. I uh, never told my friends that the summer between fifth and sixth grade, that rather than going outside and playing baseball and practicing my throw or my catching, I uh, tried to conceive a musical uh, based on Anne of Green Gables. Doesn't go very far with all the other boys in class, you know what I mean? And so I knew that the part of me that was the real part of me really wasn't being shown to many people, but I didn't want to show that because I wanted to fit in. I wanted to belong. Trouble was, as I did all this, I didn't focus on the main thing, the most important thing. I got distracted because the belonging was so important. The fitting in and having a place to have a community relationship was more important to me than being who God created me to be. I'd lost focus on my main thing. And that's what I love about this series. I love the fact that we've spent all this time dedicated to helping people discover that they aren't excluded, but that they're welcomed. A series meant to help each of us realize that belonging doesn't mean we have to give up being the best version of ourselves, our main thing, but actually discovering that what it is to live every single day out is who we're called and created to be. Because that's what Jesus is really all about, right? helping people discover the unique person he created them to be and helping them realize they belong and then discover that main thing. So today, we're going to look at a story in the Gospels that is all about this moment, this incredible thing. Uh, It's where Jesus definitely helped someone who did not fit in. I don't know um, if this person in the story was following Taylor Swift's advice to just be yourself, because really he was completely cut off from society. Nobody talked to him. Nobody knew anything about him. Even if he just tried to be himself, no one would have seen him, because he was completely removed from society. He was an outcast, and not because of anything he had done, but because of something he had. But before we jump into the details of that part of the story, I think it's, uh, it's good to kind of understand the complexity of this moment we're about to encounter with Jesus. Jesus is just coming off of preaching the greatest sermon series ever. Every pastor of every church thinks that they've done the best sermon series ever. Pastor Ricardo and I have. We both, oh man, that was amazing. Jesus did it the best. One big sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the book of Matthew. It's in the book of Luke. It's basically the longest speech that Jesus gives in the Bible. Um, It's in the story where Jesus is at in his ministry. It takes place shortly after he's been tempted in the desert, and he comes back about to kick off this incredible time where he's going to declare himself as the Savior. He's going to tell people he's going to die on the cross. It's all coming, but in this moment, he's kind of setting up this thing where he outlines for all the multitudes of people who are sitting there, this is how you should live. It's basically giving the framework of what we would call today uh, how to live a good Christian life. In a series of well-known verses here in the book of Matthew and Luke, Jesus outlines what the kingdom of God is like, how it's different from what his followers at the time may have thought it was going to be, and what set him apart and made him extremely unique compared to every other rabbi who was teaching in Israel at this time. So he's basically setting the stage for everything that we would be called to do after he went back to heaven and said, hey, it's up to you to make sure people know me. So this is where we're at today. It's it's this moment where Jesus pauses and explains to everyone, this is the main thing. Now, after he's done this, and it's a long sermon, so if you look at it, it's something like, 
In the book of Matthew, it takes almost three chapters. So it's a ton of verses. And you know, in the verses, they're not capturing everything Jesus said. But he's out there. He's explaining. It's hot. There's multitudes of people. They don't stop and take breaks. He just keeps talking. Everyone keeps listening. And by the end of it, he is physically, emotionally exhausted. He's tired. He's preached the greatest sermon ever. He's like, okay, I am, I, I'm done. I'm ready for some time off. Um, I understand how Jesus felt, I think, in this moment, because my wife uh, is a bit of an extrovert, and I tend to be a bit of an introvert. And so we loved, she, we, we, love to have parties at our house with lots of people there. And why I say she is because she lives off of this energy of lots of people. Uh, for me, after the energy's been happening for a few minutes, I'm like, I need to go hide in the bathroom for a little while to get away from all these people, because I'm so, like, exhausted by it. And I think that's how Jesus is in this moment. He's like, I've done this, I've preached, I'm tired, and I'm just going to go get some time away. And the Bible says that he's on his way to uh, just seclude himself, but a voice stops him. In uh, the book of Mark, chapter 1, uh, we see this verse, chapter, uh, verse 40. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. He says, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. For us here in the 21st century, it can be hard to understand maybe just what this moment actually means. Because leprosy was one of the ancient world's most feared diseases. Today, with science and research, we understand that it was caused by a bacterial infection. But back in those days, back in Jesus' time, anyone seeing a man approaching them with leprosy would totally freak out and run the opposite direction if they didn't just like throw sticks at the man to get him to leave. The time, it was highly infectious, and anyone uh, spending any amount of time with a leper could catch this disease as well. And although it's easily treated today, I mean, literally, it's like a, a cocktail of small drugs, takes care of it, you're living your life. Um, back in the day, it's a, it, it was pretty horrible, and it can still be bad today if you don't have medicine. Leprosy can lead to a damage of the nerve system, uh, your, repra your rep repertory tract, your skin, and your eyes. Uh, it can eventually cause severe disfigurement, making your face completely lose its natural shape. Uh, the result of the nerve damage means that you don't understand when you cut yourself, when you have a wound that happens, which means people lose their limbs. Uh, it starts with their fingers and toes. Eventually, they can lose parts of their nose, their ears. Things just happen. You don't realize you got to, you know, when we have a, an ouchie, we get a Band-Aid. If you can't feel the ouchie and your toe falls off, and you're living out there alone, you don't know what's going on. So it's just this bad situation. And the book of Leviticus had made very clear for the Jews, if a person had this kind of skin disease, here's what they had to do. You see this in the book of Levit Leviticus chapter 13. Those who suffer from a serious skin disease, like leprosy, must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. You know, we, we look back on the last year and several months, and we have, uh, remember quarantine? Who could forget, right? Yeah, it's like it just happened. And we think to ourselves, how did we stand that? I mean, for myself, I'm a little frustrated. I, we could only get takeout. I couldn't go sit in a restaurant. I had to stay home and watch a lot of Netflix. Uh, I did a lot of Zoom conference calls, which I'm still doing to this day because I'm still not back in the office. And I couldn't go to Disneyland. How awful for me, right? Do you feel the suffering? 
The law made clear that for this man and anyone like him, it was so much, much worse than our quarantine. Our quarantine lasted like a month or so. And even if you got COVID, the, the kind of the regulations they say is that if you have it, you isolate for 14 days. And if you all goes well by that time, you can go back and see people. The infection uh, rate is probably gone from you. So all goes well. And now we've got vaccines. We've got masks. It's all working out great. But for this man, there was no hope of that. If you got um, leprosy, you were removed from society, as it said in Leviticus, as long as the disease lasts. And the disease could last for a year, but for most people, it lasted decades. So as long as you have it, you could give it to someone else, which means you had to be out of town. In fact, this is how up into even the 20th century, a lot of countries would treat people who had leprosy. My parents uh, were missionaries when I was a kid and traveled frequently around the world in, in some places in Korea, in uh, Japan, uh, Thailand, India. If uh, people had leprosy, even in the 20th century, they were made to live in leper colonies, isolated from the rest of the world. They, I mean, walled gates to keep people inside, um, and they had to live there. And it didn't matter how old you were. If you were a kid and got it, boom. If you were a teenager, goodbye. If you were a senior citizen, goodbye. The whole thing was, you no longer belonged. If you had leprosy, you did not have a place in this world. So this man approaches Jesus. He's been living in this isolation. He's been removed from everything. We don't know how long, but my guess is it's been a while. Everything that matters most to him, he can no longer be part of. He's followed the law. He's done everything he's supposed to do. His face is covered. Uh, his hair's messy because he's living in the wilderness. Where's he going to find a comb out there anyway? I mean, like, so he's out there. He's a mess. And he has to shout, unclean, unclean, whenever he walks near anybody. Nobody's allowed to come near him, and he is not allowed to go near anybody else. The man has not belonged anywhere for a very long time. And I don't know about you, but that would take its toll on me after a while. I mean, imagine for just a minute, I mean, cast your mind back to quarantine and imagine you didn't have any of the comforts that we have today. Okay, think about that for a second. Um, there's the physical separation. If you saw the news, you watched the news, you see the, you know, the nursing homes, the family would be outside in the window looking at them. You couldn't even come close to the window to look at someone. So you were completely removed from your home your comfortable bed, the spaces that were yours, the things that belong to you. You can't get close to the people you love. You no longer get to hug or shake hands. You can't give a high five. You can't give a fist bump or elbow bump or whatever we're doing today to say hello to somebody. None of that's possible anymore. And then you have not just the physical separation, but now you have the emotional and social separation. I mean, interacting with other people and having conversations is how we kind of gauge our life a little bit. It's nice to be able to tell someone, hey, how's your day going? Oh, my day's going. How's your day going? And have conversation to talk about our hopes, our fears, our wishes, our dreams. We're built for that. That's what God created us for. But now this is all removed from him. Nobody checks on him. Nobody sends him a, an instant message. You know, you can't talk on, the, on Instagram. There's no way for him to share the things that he's thinking. And I guarantee you, with his life, he's thinking some pretty dark and awful things. He doesn't want to talk to you about it. So you've got your physical separation, you have this emotional isolation, and then you add the worst one, which is the spiritual isolation he's now facing. Because, you know, even for us in quarantine, we may have lost our ability to go to church, but we still had church. Most of us, if we have a, a, a Bible, we have a Bible. If we don't have a Bible, we've got an app for that. 
We were able to watch church online. Everything went digital for a while. So even though we lost our ability to physically gather, we could still have this relationship with God, with each other. But in the Jewish world, that didn't exist because the Jewish law made very clear that if you wanted to have a relationship with God, you had to go to the synagogue. It was a physical location you had to go to. You had to make a physical sacrifice to pay for your sins. The priest had to serve as the intermediary for you, and you couldn't FaceTime the priest and say, hey, can you sacrifice a dove for me? I've got leprosy. You were removed completely, which means not only did he lose his physical ability to talk to people, to be around them, his emotional connection, but now he's lost the one thing that most of us cling to when we get into those darkest moments, which is what? Our faith. It's gone. It's removed. He's unclean, alone, and he doesn't belong. What the Bible says next is interesting. This is, in, again, the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 41. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. Don't we expect Jesus to do that? We expect Jesus to be moved with compassion. It's kind of his, his thing. When he sees anyone in the Bible, look at these stories throughout Scripture, who is unfortunate, who's uh, wounded or hurting, Jesus is frequently moved to compassion. I mean, after all, he, uh, he created everybody, right? He knows every person that he encounters. He knows their hurts, their fears. So Jesus frequently does these miracles in the Gospels because of what? Because of his compassion. If you're not sure what compassion is, it's this. Sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. Hmm, Jesus is moved with compassion. And we feel like, kind of, oh, that feels really good. I like that. Way to go, Jesus. But if you like to dig in a little bit further when you read your Bible and do some research, you see that um, this verse actually has a little footnote right after that mood with compassion. And I'm one of those people who can easily get distracted by uh, d- deep diving into weird details that nobody cares about. Uh, for instance, the other day I, um, I heard a song by the Beach Boys, and by the time I realized that I had spent like three hours reading every Wikipedia article about the Beach Boys and the complexity of the songs. And my wife looks up, she goes, what are you doing now? I'm like, I'm reading about the Beach Boys. Still? Well, I'm reading now about the song God Only Knows. And man, it's like a, a masterpiece. She's like, you are so weird. And I am, but I appreciate that about myself. But you see, as you dig deeper, you understand, you find out more. And hear this, is that in this footnote, it says this. Some manuscripts... So, as you know with the Bible, there's multiple manuscripts that kind of put them together to make one complete final word. And some of the manuscripts, in the earliest manuscripts, uh, don't say moved to compassion. It actually says this, moved with anger. Some of the earliest manuscripts of the book of Mark tell us that it wasn't sympathetic pity or concern that caused Jesus to kill a man, but anger that moved him. The leper asked Jesus, are you willing to heal me? Jesus looks at the man and is filled with anger. Of course I can do this. You can nearly nearly hear him say this. Jesus practically yells the disease off the guy, right? Be healed! You and I may wonder what, what is happening in this moment that would cause Jesus to be so angry. Why would the God of the universe not feel sorry for this man, but instead feel really kind of upset? What about the situation would cause Jesus's blood to boil? Was it because the man approached him when he is unclean and should have stayed away? No, that's not Jesus. We know he would never have done that. Was it because the man had the gall to ask Jesus if he'd even be willing to help him? Well, understanding Jesus, that's probably not why he did it either. 
So what would it be that would cause Jesus to have such anger that it would cause him to physically act? Here's what I think. I think Jesus had just finished preaching this sermon. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? He had just done this sermon where he's outlining for everyone how we should treat each other if we want to see the kingdom of heaven. He preached a sermon about being a peacemaker, about how to be poor in spirit, how to forgive others beyond the hurts that we've ever felt from them. He wrapped it up by teaching everyone how to pray. That's the verse that begins with our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus had just done this incredible teaching. It helps people say, this is how you should live your life. If you're going to follow me, this is what it's like to do this. And the first thing he does when he comes off the mountain is see someone who is not getting any of that from the world around him. Now, that may be the one thing that irritates him, but the greater thing is that Jesus is God in the flesh, which means he created a perfect world for us to experience, a world to live in without sin, without disease, without hurt and harm and all the awful stuff that goes with it. And he looks at this man in his condition, and I believe truly that as the creator of the universe, he saw this and went, this is not what I intended for the people that I created. He did not create you and I to live in isolation, to be alone, to be forsaken because of disease, because of sin, because of anything. We're meant to be together in relationship with each other, and most importantly, with him. So Jesus, I think, is irritated. He is filled with anger. And the anger moves him that he has no choice but to act. (laughs) Of course I am willing, he says. Be healed. In our world where we sanitize everything and wash our hands, and uh, I don't know about you, but at the beginning of COVID, we kept wipes in our cars so we could wipe down the gas station pumps when we forgot gas. You know, we may hear this man's request, Lord, if you're willing, will you please heal me? And almost think to ourselves that Jesus kind of just does this like spiritual soap and water thing on him. So, oh, look, you're healed now. But to the man whose unclean cry ensured that he had never had human contact, he had never had connection, this cry of, Lord, will you heal me? It was a cry for hope, for a future, for something better and greater than anything he'd experienced since that day he'd first noticed the white spots on his skin and went, I have to go see the priest because the priest would tell him what he could do. The law said, this is what you had to do. And the law was created for the right reasons. The reason why the first book after, you know, got Genesis, Exodus, and then you get some really dull books, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we look at them like, man, why are there so many details about what you should do with this and how you should walk this far and do this thing? Well, it was created because until the law was written, we didn't understand how to truly have relationship with each other and how to treat each other if someone did something wrong to us or someone did the right thing to us. God's like, this is how I want you to live. And by the way, if you want to have a relationship with me, you better do all these things. The law existed for all the right reasons. But Jesus said this about the law. Don't misunderstand why I have come, he says in the book of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings or the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. You see, Jesus understood this law better than anyone. It was his law after all. But Jesus said that he came to accomplish the purpose of the law, which means if the law was created to give us a framework for how to have a relationship with each other and with God, then Jesus came to show us here's how it can actually happen because you cannot do all these things on your own. 
You cannot physically keep every single one of these laws. It's impossible. But with me, I can do this for you. I can show you how to live it out. I can show you how to restore the brokenness that made the law necessary in the first place. So the law of Moses had driven the man away. It kept him apart. But Jesus, who came to fulfill the law, brings the man back. He gives him a place to belong. Moved with compassion, but most likely anger, (laughs) Jesus reaches out and touches him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappears and the man was healed. With no more than four words, Jesus gives the man everything he longs for. He heals the man of what has kept him apart. He removes the stain, the stigma, and the separation. You see, you belong may be the title of the series, but it's really what Jesus is telling this outcast, this rejected man, and every single person like him, both then and today. The world has told him that he isn't welcome. The world tells people all the time they're not welcome, that they have no place, that they don't fit in. They must stay away until they can make themselves better, until the disease goes away. But we can't do that on our own. We can't take care of that. So Jesus does the impossible. Now, because Jesus heals the man, because he is willing, the man can actually belong somewhere again. He gets to go home. He gets to live his life. He no longer has to feel that emotional, the spiritual, that physical isolation. And if that was all there is to the story, that'd be a great lesson for us, right? I mean, think about it. We could look at the world around us full of people who don't belong anywhere, people who don't have a place, who don't have hope, who have things, sin in their life that have isolated them and kept them apart. And Jesus models for you and I, hey, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Give them a place. Help them heal. Help them understand that they do belong. But there's more to the story. Uh, This is the first part, the healing part, and and we like that part. This part's pretty simple, actually. When Pastor Carter first asked me to to talk about this story, I was like, oh, this is a good one. Nice and easy. Please heal me. I'm an outcast. You're healed. Now you belong. Yay, end of story. But that's not what happens next. I mean, it'd be great if Jesus looked at the leper and said, hey, you don't need to stay away any longer. You have a safe place. Come on, buddy, let's hug, right? But that's not what happens. Actually, in the book of Mark, uh, chapter 1, verse 43, it says this. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be the public testimony that you have been cleansed. Wait, what what just happened right there? After doing this amazing miracle, I mean, literally changes the man's life, Jesus tells the man, shh, don't tell anybody. And he doesn't just say it in a casual way. I mean, the Bible says, you know, here in, in the New Living Translation, it says, then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. I mean, I've given my kids stern warnings before, right? You better not do that. Don't you dare do that. When your mother finds out, you're going to be in so much trouble. That's a stern warning, right? Maybe a teacher used to do this at you. I had a lot of teachers used to do that at me, so I understand. But there's more to the stern warning than the English translation lets it be, because the Greek here is actually a little more more intense. The, The original Greek word means I snort 
with displeasure or indignation. That's not a stern warning. That's Jesus going, don't tell anybody. We don't like to think about Jesus snorting because that's like, oh, that's God. He doesn't snort. He snorted. And he was angry. He was so intense in this moment. He wants the leopard to understand, do not take this lightly. Don't you miss what I'm saying to you. I do not want you to tell anybody what happened. That's not what I want this to be. Jesus is focusing on something very important right here. He's telling the man not to tell anyone what happened, but to go through the proper channels. Go see the priest, show him you're healed, and you get your life back. It's great, but shh, don't tell anyone. This is a weird story. Why does Jesus tell him not to tell him? Tell anybody. I believe it's included here for us to understand for two reasons. The first one is this. To show us that even the most outcast person in society is not far from God. And that because of Jesus, everyone can have a place to belong. That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty clear. But the second part is harder to understand, but it's just as important to remind us to focus on what matters most. Because Jesus just gives the man a stern warning, a snort of indignation and says, don't tell anybody what just happened. And what does the man do? Well, in verse 45, it says this. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had just happened. He does the exact opposite of what God does with a snort when he tells him to do something. If it was me and Jesus snorted at me and said, don't do that, you better believe it. Like, I'm not going to do that. But this man can't wait to go tell the world that he just got healed. And as a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places. But people from everywhere kept coming to him. Jesus' anger compelled the compassion, which caused the man's healing and gave him back his place in society. It gave the man a place to belong, and Jesus is definitely all about that. Like I said, Jesus knew you and I are created for community and relationship, and that by healing the man, he would give all of that back to him and restore his hope. But Jesus didn't want that to become the main thing. I mean, Jesus had literally preached a sermon just a moment before this on how to relate to others, how to live, how to trust, how to pray. He was busy preparing his followers then and us today for the main reason he came. And guess what? It wasn't to do miracles. It wasn't to heal the lame, to make the blind man see, to raise Lazarus from the dead, or to feed 5,000 people with a bunch of fish. No, he did it for one thing, to seek and save the lost, to set captives free, to give us abundant life, life like we've never known. But by telling everyone that Jesus had healed him, the man muddied the message. In fact, it gets, it's kind of weird because in the crazy turn of events, the man switches places with Jesus, right? As a result, large crowds soon surround Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. Jesus had literally just told the people, I have come to go into the towns and tell everyone what's going on and proclaim the day of the Lord. And instead, suddenly he can't even go to town anymore because everyone's like, Jesus, heal me, heal me, heal me. Mm, that's not why I came. Yes, because of the healing miracle, the man got his life back. But because he didn't obey, obey Jesus' warning, 
Jesus lost his ability to walk into where he needed to go and proclaim the true message that he had come to proclaim. What mattered most to Jesus was not the man's healing and restoration in the moment. What mattered to him was what mattered most. You see, the healing was temporary, right? Yeah, he lost his leprosy, but guess what? He still was going to die. The miracles that Jesus did did not change the eternal trajectory of these people's life. Yes, he healed the lame man. Yes, he brought Lazarus back from the dead. But guess what happened to Lazarus? He still died again. Jesus does not want us to focus like the man did on this momentary thing. Jesus wants us to focus on eternity. You see, when we truly want to be like Jesus and help everyone belong, it's not just about the short-term win what I like to call the miracle of the moment, the temporary amazing euphoria that we feel when we experience some unexpected win or blessing. You know, like that feeling you feel when you've invited a friend to church for a long time and they finally come, you're like, yes! Yes, this is great! But Jesus is like, okay, good, we got him here, but don't let that be the thing. If you've been in a moment where you've been financially destitute, I have a memory of many years ago when I was out of work and... um, and we needed money, and I had none. I had no chance of getting any. And suddenly, on our front porch, someone had dropped off a check for a couple thousand dollars that paid our mortgage. And I'm like, how did that happen? And God's like, yeah, I provided that for you. But guess what? That's not the main thing. That's wonderful that in this moment, someone took care of you, and I was able to bless you. But I care more about the bigger thing, which is your eternal salvation. The bigger thing. The main thing is what Jesus came to do. He came to save people from their sins. He came to die on the cross. He came to be resurrected on the third day. He came to restore the broken relationship between man and God. He didn't come to fix the temporary, but to alter the eternal. You see, when we focus on the moment and not on the main thing, it keeps us from truly living out this idea of what it means to belong. Here at Journey, when we say you belong, we're not saying it so you can feel good about yourself. Yay, I belong, hugs. That's not why we're here. When we say you belong, we're saying you were made for the main thing, the best part of you, the person you were truly created to be, the thing that makes you the youer than you, as Dr. Seuss said, is that here in this place, you can discover what truly matters most, what makes you so wonderfully, beautifully, uniquely you. And that is the fact that you are an eternal creation intended for an eternal relationship with a God who went to the greatest possible lengths to save you and bring you back into relationship with him. That is what matters most. I became much happier in my life when I finally stopped pretending and was honest about who I am. I prefer a good book to a football game. I'd much rather watch a musical than March Madness. And I'm going to be honest, Disneyland just reopened this week, right? I watched all the pictures and all the videos of everyone walking back into the happiest place on earth. And that meant far more to me than than the NFL draft. And guess what? The people who love me and care about me and know me, they know that's how God created me. And they know that I understand this better about myself because I've understood, God, what did you make me for? Did you make me for this or this? And God says, no, I just made you to love me. Oh, wow. So by loving you, I get to be fully me? Yes. The best version of me is because of Jesus. 
And that is the main thing. Belonging starts because Jesus does something amazing, like what he did for the leper. He gives you the miracle in the moment, but after the temporary moment, you discover that belonging actually means that Jesus' saving grace takes you from the past, removes the stuff you think you need to have, and he sets you free to be exactly who he knows you are and what he created you to be. So, what did we learn from this moment in the Gospels? It's five small verses. It takes a really weird turn with Jesus snorting at this guy and telling him, not telling him but this, what happened. Well, here's what we do with it. We remind ourselves that even the most outcast person in society is not far from God, and that because of Jesus, everyone can have a place to belong. But even more importantly, it reminds us to focus on what matters most. Here's what it is. Jesus is far more than a healer. He's much more than a miracle maker. And he is far more incredible than just a good teacher who said some incredible things. He is the Son of God. He is the risen Savior. And the life he promises us, what he called abundant life, is ours today. Eternal life doesn't start when you die and you go to heaven. Eternal life begins the minute you realize, I was made for a relationship with God, and the only way I can have that relationship is because Jesus died for me. I want that. Help me be the best part of me, God. And he says, I'm here for you. You belong. You have a place. Let's put away the temporary things of the world. Yes, it's amazing when God does a work, but he wants us to focus on the main thing for what lasts forever. So stop trying to fit in. Stop trying to find the thing that will make you feel the youest of you. Because with Jesus, you already have that. Because of Jesus, you belong. Will you stand with me for a moment? Will you just stand with me wherever you are? There's something about this sermon that kind of messed me up when I was writing it because I get very easily focused on the temporary things. I get easily focused on what's going wrong in the world, what I don't agree with politically, what I see this, and and God's like, why are you focusing on that? What's the main thing? Well, the main thing is Jesus. That's my main thing. And if he's not your main thing, well, then it'd be a great day to get off the temporary to get away from the moment and embrace the eternal. So if you don't mind, let's just pray for a moment. Close your eyes, um, bow your heads if that's your thing. But I just want to pray and just say, if there's anyone in this room right now who's either with us right here or they're watching online, I just want to encourage you to ask yourself, what's my main thing? I want to belong so desperately. Am I changing stuff about myself? Am I trying to fit in by pursuing this thing or that thing? And Jesus is simply saying, don't do any of that. I'm right here. I'm here for you. Focus on me. If you're in that place today, then I just want to pray that you will open your heart to him. Join me and lots of other people that are in this room, on this stage, and say, we know what our main thing is, is Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for a day like today where we can pause, where we can worship, where we can celebrate what it means to know you, but more importantly, we can focus on what is the most important thing. It's not belonging or fitting into a place, God. It's belonging to you. It's knowing that we have a place here because of what you did for us. We thank you that you are the risen Savior. We thank you that you died for us. We thank you that you live again and that we can live for you. 
And Father, if there's anyone who is listening today that needs to understand that greater, I pray they will pursue you and open you and come to you like the leper and say, Lord, if you are willing, will you heal me? And Jesus will say to you, I am willing. You are healed. Your sins are forgiven. You are my child now. You are claimed by the blood that I shed for you on the cross. And I will give you the life you've always wanted, the eternal abundant life, life like you've never known. It's only possible because of Jesus. Father, we love you. We pray that you will help us be a church where everyone who walks these doors will realize that because of you, they belong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to join your journey. And I hope the message made a big difference in your life. And if it did, we just encourage you to go to journeychurchventura.com and let us know. Also, be free to share this message with your friends and family. We just love to impact as many people as we can. Once again, thank you for joining us at Journey Church Ventura.